So and welcome to another episode of Rebel City Podcast. This week's guest is Sharon Brand from Recovery Dundee. How's it going, Sharon? Fine, how are you? Fresh off your interview with Jeremy Vine. Oh, nice God. to meet you. Yeah, and you. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that I think the last like sort of four weeks we went to, um, don't know if you've seen the podcast Drunk Therapy. It's like a Glasgow podcast, but mm-hmm. we went to their sub crawl mm-hmm. and I met a couple of guys that I've only spoke to on Twitter and it seems to be the last sort of like four weeks has been taken up by just meeting people that I've spoke to online and it's getting less weird. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah you're like, oh, I thought you'd be smart, I thought you were a wee bit smaller, <laughs> like, no. And for, well, fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah. So, Sharon, do you want to just tell the listeners like who you are um, and what Recovery Dundee is? So, Recovery Dundee was the first independent recovery community I'd say in the UK, but I'll be I'll stay safe and say Scotland. Um, we still are the only independent recovery community that exists. Everything else is connected to fellowship or NHS or a service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we've looked at recovery communities across the world and seen that they're run by peers and funded by social enterprise, and that's what we want to achieve here. So we support people. In and out of treatment, um, families, kids, young people that have never even touched drugs but okay. are maybe affected by it. So really a, 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 com- a whole community of support, of peers supporting each other, that's it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, have you had your own experience with addiction? Mm-hmm. I was a heroin addict for seven years and I was on methadone for three I've been off methadone for three years, sorry, <coughs> and I've been clean from heroin, I think, probably seven years. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Aye, that's oh outstanding. God, thanks, yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's <laughs> such a, it's a, a, a life-ruining drug, really. Yeah, I think I was quite lucky. I, I, I had a point of reference. I never started using heroin until I was 27. I'd been to uni, I'd lived a life, I'd lived in London, I'd mm-hmm. done... So I had a point of reference to go back to. If we find, especially in Dundee, a lot of the people that we support have maybe not had that point of reference. Yeah. Mm. They've maybe been quite young mm-hmm. and never actually lived as adults and functioning and contributing. So, yeah, it's, um, I've been pretty lucky, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, just to sort of fill some of the listeners in as well, you were featured recently in the, the sort of Scotland Today thing, um, and you know people wondering why we're talking about Dundee when we normally sort of talk about Glasgow, mm-hmm. um, and obviously you know quite a sort of small snapshot of what you do, mm-hmm. um, and kind of when we seen it, we're like, well, these guys look brilliant, and kind of want to get into a bit more detail. So like, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of like some of the peer to peer services that we talk about quite often about mental health and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like, you're saying you're the only like recovery. Independent, independent, independent yeah. recovery so, so. yeah a, a lot of <clears throat> the, the recovery communities that exist now were probably set up probably I'd say about 12 or 13 years ago mm-hmm. initially the Scottish Recovery Consortium was created put together for that reason mm-hmm. and they've done a great job of it but every single recovery community that we know of is connected to the fellowship in some way we wanted to offer when somebody's coming out of treatment give them an overall look, so mm-hmm. you're not guiding anybody. It's they're finding their journey themselves. So okay. we kind of see ourselves as a buffer between treatment and the community, and community and treatment. So instead of somebody going all the way back to a service, yeah, they could come to us instead of having to go back into mm-hmm. treatment or something, and then vice versa. Okay, um, we're activists as well. We cause a lot of trouble sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I like to hear that. Yeah. But. So, in terms of the services that you, you provide, I mean, is there mm-hmm. a couple examples? We're you not a just... service. I'll just put, say that. I say Sorry. that. No, no, I get it. 
we try to stay away from that. Okay. We do ov- obviously offer support, and people would describe it as a service, maybe an organisation. But for for us, I think, especially in Dundee, the services have stayed the same way for thirty years. Okay. So we want to distinguish a, a difference between the two of, of us, so that we see them as reco- uh, treatment based recovery. And we're the recovery community. Mm-hmm. We believe that a, a service can never be a community. It never course. can be a recovery community. So what support then does your recovery community provide, so we, just to give people examples to so contextualise online support. So we, we've got people in Australia and New York that we speak to, that we support online, mm-hmm. all over Scotland, down south. Wow. And then we do one-to-one support. We've got group activities. Mm-hmm. Personal training, um, art, music. Um, we do an open mic once a month. We have a recovery right. cafe once a week, and then the main group meet once a week as well. So yeah. So busy then. Quite busy. Mm-hmm. Sounds really familiar to like pretty much all the community-based yeah. mental health. Yes. N- no services, but groups are popping up. Well, mm-hmm. it's centered around sort of connection, fitness, well-being, education, and all the good stuff. just making people feel part of something but rather than just sounds, like isolated mm-hmm. it also sounds as though it's driven out of all of the things that drive these other groups that we're talking about because it sounds to me as though you're looking towards a quite a lengthy you know gap in these actual official services that you're mm-hmm. talking about you said you know it's been you know decades that some people have essentially just been parked and put to one side yeah. like i mean <clears throat> we have our own addiction and recovery stories that we've covered at length in the past and we'll mm-hmm. always time get into but like Never to the extent where, you know, we were parked on something like methadone for years at a time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and that to me feels as though I don't. I don't know how we qualify that as a cure or or or, or a fix or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if there's, you know, how how do they classify? It? I mean, do they do they do they classify having somebody parked on methadone as them being treated or them being recovered? <coughs> so people, I know people that have been on methadone for thirty years that have been told they're in recovery. And if you're trying to explain to somebody that's been on methadone for 30 years that they've not experienced anything until they've took their last dose of methadone and moved forward, mm-hmm. it's quite difficult. They've sold it like that, so that they've they've made it more difficult for people to get better, I think, in the past. That's changing slightly. Okay. And they're starting to understand what recovery entails. But even in Dundee, they still, like... I went to a meeting um, about three weeks ago with the council... And this this group has been meeting for over a year. Okay. It's based on resilient communities, and it's a really cool buzzword. F- yeah, for the whole of that meeting, I was sort of speaking and trying to explain the stuff that they're trying to do, how it wouldn't work or it would work, and it blew my mind that these people are getting paid, they've got jobs, mm-hmm. they're based on recovery, and they don't have a clue what the fuck they're doing, like. Honestly, don't know what recovery looks like by the sounds of it. Definitely not. I think um, it's quite a it's quite a new word for for Scotland. Recovery is it's in infancy as far as I don't know as as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like ten years in, you're just starting to get the gist of it, but that's not even happened because they've blurred the lines between treatment and getting better. So mm-hmm. um, they've be, they they say treatment is recovery, and and that fucks you up. Like, yeah. Definitely. 
So it's like a, a you know something that's almost used to manipulate statistics and make it look like there's progress. I but mean, the they actual don't even, yeah. nowhere near that. They don't even have a proper figure of how many people are on methadone. They take an optimal dose and divide that by whatever how much they're given out. So I was on twenty five mil, and any other people that are on sixty, seventy. Okay. Optimal dose would be fifty. So there's a, a, a huge gap between what some people are taking and what others uh-huh. are. So they've not even got a clear picture and So about even the guesstimate is wildly no. inaccurate? Yes, 100%. And that's, that's crazy that you would have a city the size of Dundee and, and not have any idea who is... Even the figures that are given out by the NHS and that, they're very deceiving because the only reason they know them is if somebody's engaged with them. Mm-hmm. And a huge majority of people that are addicted don't engage with services. Like no. we, A lot of people that we work with are people that would never go to the NHS for support or that. So the the, it, the figures are very deceiving, <clears throat> Like in, in my view. I've said that so many times. So they're skewed before anybody even starts yeah, to play with them, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. But do you, what is the sort of statistical or like what is the best practice way to help somebody with a recovery allow them to figure it out themselves and just give them room to do that like and obviously you need people with experience who have been through that so that you've got a point of reference somebody that's never experienced can never possibly give you that advice or um show you a way that might work for you or you could do that way and adapt it for that's what usually happens people take bits and pieces of what other people have done and create their own but in a service it's very regimental it's very punitive Mm -hmm. and you don't have that freedom like if you don't go appointments you get your prescription stopped if you're not engaging you get your prescription stopped if you're antisocial at the pharmacy you get banned like it's a very punitive system of care and that's a, it's a weird juxtaposition there that you would punish somebody whilst trying to treat or care for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't see how that's anything other than sort of counterproductive. I mm-hmm. think it comes from the the fact it's illegal to take drugs, and I think the stigma mm-hmm. carries on through whoever works in that service, and it filters down. It's a societal thing, I think. Uh, almost an institutional bias mm. in a lot of respects. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that that opinion's starting to the ship starting to turn? One hundred percent. Yeah, I think. Um, since I started three years ago, there's a lot happened. Even in Dundee, like the small pockets of things that are changing and even attitudes of people that I've spoke to before in media are now coming round to a different way of thinking and approaching it in a different way. I think it's going to take about five years for anything that we're doing right now to be truly effective. Mm-hmm. But that's just my personal opinion on mm-hmm. that. Yeah. It I must think, be well, sorry, it must be pretty I mean, when I think back and I've spoken about this before in the podcast, I, I I'm I don't I'm not judging myself in any way, but when I think about my own attitude, I mean, I grew up in a, a council scheme, so did Matt. Mm-hmm. The general attitude towards addicts in the scheme was that they're scum. Really. That is to put it horribly, but that is the language that you used. I mean, Aye, that, they were written off. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um and when I think back <coughs> To some of the, the people and some of the families that the the, the guys and like women that came for, I mean, they, they never had a chance. They, no. they really never Crimes, had a fucking chance. Absolutely. We've seen this in the Scotland today that in Dundee there's and I'm sure there are as many examples elsewhere in the country, but just because we're talking about Dundee, mm-hmm. like where heroin use is multi generational. Like, yes, it is. I think right now we've got a crack epidemic in Dundee. Mm-hmm. So, and it scares me because the drug service is set up for opiate addiction. So anything over and above that, you've not got a hope in hell of getting support from. And crack is 
I warned them two years ago how bad it would get, and it's it's th at that point already. Right. And I don't know how they're going to deal with that because they can't even deal with what they're doing. So the system now. that's not even tooled to deal with heroin addiction is absolutely <coughs> in no way, shape, or form ready to deal with crack. Definitely not. 100%. Even like they had a blanket ban on Valium in 2015 in Tayside, and that is when we've seen the explosion of the fake, what they call the fake Valium. Yeah. They're not even fake Valium. Fake benzos and. Yeah. It's Lamel. I think it's Lapatherapine or something like that. I don't know. But even now, if somebody goes and presents and says they've got an issue with Valium and they take a drug test, there's no Valium in their system which they know that's going to happen of because course. they already know that the volume isn't volume. Uh -huh. yeah. And then they tell that person they can't support them or they can't detox them because they wouldn't prescribe them volume mm. for something that's not, yeah. It's like a pure just going run in circles. Yeah, chasing your tail. That's Absolutely. It sounds like, they, well, it, it's more about statistics than it is about actual people coming forward like actual experiences the, the point that i was going to make about the, my attitude towards it was indicative of everybody's attitude towards yes. addicts and, and the, the schemes and what must it be like for somebody that wants to come forward for help but even when they cross the front door into what's supposed to be their home they're met with remarks and abuse i mean we, we used to give people abuse do you know what i mean yeah, like, yeah. i'm not proud of it whatsoever do you know what i mean but it, it's a it's a good way for me to look back and think man fuck do you know what i mean like this is must be horrible like if you are isolated in like a flat a council flat in east end of glasgow and you maybe are wanting to scream for help and all that you get met with is either abuse for the people that are running about you just or to be totally dehumanized exactly yeah. the gp maybe you know, looking down his nose at you or whatever it is and then getting put on methadone and then just left there for fucking 30 years. I can't even imagine what... I, I, my brain struggles to compute that. So it does. Like, I, don't, I don't get how that is allowed to happen. Yeah, we've got a family now that's four generations in. And that's that's like the story of most families in Dundee that have got four generations now of addicts yeah. or someone that's been addicted. And it's scary because the young people that are coming up, there's not... like. If you're there educating children about drugs, they're showing them what they are and telling them how to take them and and, and where you get them from and who... Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. The education is, isn't as it should be. I think the stigma and discrimination, m part of it is media, mm -hmm. like they're, they're criminalised and it's against the law to take drugs, so people take a, yep. a dim view on it anyway uh -huh. before you even start. And then, of course... You, you change physically, you change mentally, your appearance changes. So as soon as somebody sees that you're using drugs, then you're kind of isolated from your own community. Yeah. And, and that's where Ostracized. the issues lie. Yeah, yeah. That's where the issues lie. But I think housing schemes now, I think there's more people addicted than there's not. Really? I think mm. it's, we're at the worst. Do you think we're worse than what we were in like the early 90s when... I, w I can't comment on that because mm. obviously... I Who knows? Yeah, yeah. it could have been. I think that I remember looking at... At the time when we we've, talk about like the statistics on Scottish mm -hmm. drug deaths of late, somebody had put on Twitter that this is the worst period for addiction deaths in Scotland's history, mm -hmm. and I was thinking back and going, I can remember The Walking Dead, yes. like in the early nineties, yeah. and how can that be true? Depends but then on when statistics start, man. People then went, things, oh, but they I mean? didn't record that, and I was like, right, so that, that or even that's yeah, yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah. or even now they find ways to record it in manners that they shouldn't. Yeah, I, I mean, think what? I think that if you think back then, 
that it was a fairly new issue then, so people really didn't know how to deal with that, right. and they were just scrambling about to find the best way possible, and methadone seemed like the answer then, and it's probably saved a lot of lives and yeah. stopped blood-borne viruses and stuff like that, but society's changed mm-hmm. tremendously since then. Mm-hmm. The way of life for everybody has changed. How we live our lives has changed. Um, I think that that's still in the dark ages compared to now, but uh, one of the members has been addicted since she was 15 and she's now away to be in her 50s. And and she remembers back then and it was bad. It was yeah. really bad. Mm-hmm. In terms of like Dundee itself, like what is it? What do you think? Is it poverty? Is poverty it, is a huge a, Is it availability? Is it... That as well. Is there anything... Like, I don't know. Kids like, now, it's easier to buy cocaine than it is to go in the town and get alcohol. Absolutely. Like, easier and is cheaper, it, probably. Absolutely. I mean, on I'm Instagram. A, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a, an open user of cannabis mm-hmm. and I've got a lot of people on my Instagram accounts that <laughs> maybe other people will be like, maybe you shouldn't have them on your Instagram account, but... The amount of, I mean, it's almost been commercialised, you guys that are Social selling media it shoots, to you. Yeah, I done yeah. an investigation with the Times, I think, last year or okay. the year before, and uh, how people were using social media to sell drugs. And then um, people locally were targeting other people deliberately who they knew were trying to get better. So it became a big issue for us because people we were supporting were being affected by that. So but like they were approaching them on social media? Yeah, yeah. When they were trying to get Tell them that they're, they're selling stuff or they've got some stuff for sale. Or, so you're not even having to leave your house. So actually, that's literal preying on weakness. The, the, then turning the, the postman into a drug dealer because that's what they've done. Like. Yeah, yeah I've, I've received... Cannabis from the post before, so and from Canada, so <laughs> but um, the several postmen the, are now criminals now because yeah. of you. <laughs> the, the amount of like I said, the adverts, like we, we've I think I've spoken maybe not on the podcast, but we spoke about this in private the way mm. that it's changed. Like it used to be a really intimidating thing. I can remember going to the guy's flat in Cranhill for like my first eight quid bit of hash and. You're shitting yourself going up and chapping this oh, door. And, but now like, it is literally like getting a takeaway. Yeah, yeah. You can send a text, somebody will be here in 15 minutes. And mm. and that isn't even just, I mean, people be like, I beat your top. But we, that, that's everything. I mean, oh, you literally get a menu. Or like, you want this, you want Coke, you want pills, you want whatever, like um, Xanax, whatever it, it might aye. be. Mm. And ultimately what you're getting is you don't know. No. You, you don't know you what don't you're know. getting. Definitely not. I think... A lot of the stuff that's coming in now it isn't from Scotland or it isn't even created in this country. So mm. people are risking their lives on a daily basis, especially with the type of drugs that people are choosing to take just mm-hmm. now. But or the combinations of yeah, drugs, that seems to be the also thing. Also, young people are getting targeted. They are being groomed. like So kids that maybe have, I don't know, that have not had the greatest upbringing now are being targeted to be drug dealers or couriers. Like mm-hmm. I see it all the time. Yep. Young girls as well being groomed by. That's quite. That's yeah. that's a long-standing thing. Yeah, that's it? gone yeah. on for a long, long to, time. We, we guys used to be like the but sort of not, foot soldiers, didn't they? They, used to like, they don't even hide it anymore. Like no. they don't hide it anymore. Like it's not. Yeah. I think the freedom social media has given people has then created that in the community as well. Aye. You know. Mm-hmm. This would make it so much more difficult to track the the traffic related to like mm-hmm. drug purchases around Glasgow. I mean, I know there's guys that will literally 
you text them and they'll walk up to you in Glasgow's middle of Glasgow City Centre and hand after you and they'll even think twice about it. I knew a guy that used to camp out the four corners in the McDonald's. Now, I've not heard for this guy in Asia. I'm I'm going to assume that he's in jail or something. (laughs) He literally, his office was the upstairs in the McDonald's, didn't it? Um, High streets like that in Dundee, like, there's a a group of guys that do the full circle the whole day, like, right round the high street and in the back. And it sees, like... You wonder what the police are actually doing about this issue because mm. if they're not tackling it on social media, and they're not allowing they're allowing it to go on the community in your high streets when you and stuff like that, and then in the schemes, it's like a free for all. Yeah, mm-hmm. what, what are they and actually? It makes a bit of a joker the criminalisation when <laughs> you know. And I think this is part of it, though. I think is... the decriminalisation is they've been pushing that for the last three or four years now. And I think the step back from the police is because of that, to prove that they need to decriminalise it. It's mm-hmm. like an argument for it, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to stuff like that. What uh, kind of impact do you think decriminalising all drugs? Let's just say that they just went down the route, but they just went, right, it's no longer a criminal offence to consume or buy drugs, but obviously they would. the dealers are... That's a different thing because that's mm. that, that that's completely different. But do you think it would have? Because we were talking about this half mic that the minimum, uh, not the minimum price in alcohol, the legalisation of weed in America seems to have the the, the consumption between fifteen and twenty ones went through the floor. Whereas the argument that was always made was that if we legalise this, all that you're going to see is teenagers. The uptake amongst teenagers is just going to go through the roof. But Holland, Amsterdam's another one, but yep. just the teenagers just don't do it. Like it, or, the thing is, if, if, you, if you make something illegal, then when you're told not to do something, even though it's from your parents or somebody, yeah. the first thing you're going to do when you're able to do it is what, do it. What I try it. Yeah, exactly. If you take that away. Then there's there's no mystery around it. Yep. Like people know it's acceptable. Mm. People are educated exactly. properly. And pain and I terms worry, of tax and stuff. I worry like about that. decriminalization because other countries that have done it, um, they've overhauled their whole system. Yeah, like Portugal's the, a yeah, good example. And the, the way they're trying to frame it in Scotland is all oh, we need is safe injecting rooms, blah blah blah, and that they're all great, and they would help a, a tiny portion of people. But mm-hmm. I think for decriminalization to work. The whole system needs to be overhauled, and that is never going yeah. to happen. Definitely not. It's a shame because I mean, even in terms of like reading up myself, I know we've talked pretty extensively about heroin and um, you know like methadone and things mm-hmm. like that. So as much as Paul's using examples that relate to like you know weed, mm-hmm. you know people at home will be going, well, you know, weed's one thing. You know, it's what about heroin? I mean, in <laughs> Norway when they began the process of like it was decriminalising, um, they started as a test with like inhaling heroin, like smoking mm-hmm. heroin. And they were saying that in the first four years of that, the death rate half went from something like 290-something to like 140-something. And it's basically like three or four years. So even the decriminalisation of heroin mm-hmm. has at least some sort of statistical validity in terms of it's not just, you know, weed or it's not just this. Like, this is a, an actual practice that in huge places in South America, huge places in Eastern Europe, you know, Western Europe in terms of Portugal and the obviously things that mm-hmm. we are considering, even Scandinavia, places all across Scandinavia have various incarnations of these things and like they all have a level of success <laughs> behind them. Like, so I can get why we need to maybe think about that as part Definitely, of a conversation. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, my concern about the conversation is not necessarily that that's where we are. Like, people are like, the war on drugs probably hasn't worked. Like, 
where prohibition almost never works anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously the conversation moves on to, so what's next? Which, mm -hmm. you know, right now is drug decriminalisation. But, like, part of that conversation for me has become really muddy in terms of kind of like what I feel is maybe political point scoring and, like, finger pointing and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I'm looking at it, and I've seen a quote for a, a current sort of SNP candidate um, at their party conference saying... We wanted decriminalisation of drugs, but it, well, you know, our hands are tied by a Westminster issue. But then I looked at the actual devolved powers of the Scottish Parliament after that, because it didn't feel right. And the Scottish Parliament's got power on health, public health, law and order. Like, so, I mean, I don't get where <coughs> the disconnect is. Is, is, that, is it that Westminster is actually tying people's hands, or is it that the Scottish Government could be doing more? Would you, is there, do you have an opinion on that? Well, I mean, based on what I've experienced the last three years and what we've achieved, just a small community group mm -hmm. that's gone national and... And even, even, Yeah, even further than that. If we can do that in three years and, and keep a majority of people that have probably been in the drug services for decades, mm -hmm. then there is ways and means that we've got in Scotland to do that right now. And uh, to me, it's wasting time. The political arguments for and against... Like, uh, they didn't interest me, but obviously mm -hmm. my work means I have to take an interest in that. Of but course. I think decriminalisation is, uh, I think independence is more uh, what our government is pushing for and, and, and that is part of it, which okay. upsets me a lot because I think that um, people are dying and whilst people are dying, then there should be a lot more done. And this uh, is my concern as well because mm -hmm. I, I see policies on... You know, and as I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic, mm -hmm. like the minimum price in alcohol, mm -hmm. the talk of decriminalisation, like so that there is, you know, wiggle room. There's chat about, you know, as you say, safe shooting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rooms and stuff like that. Um, the increase of was it, is it Nandrolone or Nandrox or the the, the anti overdose drug? Naloxone. sorry, mm -hmm. uh, being made available. So there is like stuff that's that can be done. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, but yet we seem we still see that. I think we're like what four times the uh, the European average in drug deaths in Scotland. Like so, I don't get what the disconnect is. If if we can help people, why are we not doing it? And if we can't help people, how do we go about making the change that we need to actually like facilitate that change? Mm -hmm. you know I think I, mean? I think a lot of focus has been on harm reduction and treatment. And when they're selling recovery or or saying get into recovery, the people that are telling you that don't actually know what that means mm -hmm. like they've never experienced it so it's near it's been near on impossible for anybody in before 10 years ago to really get better without the fellowship or without rehab or mm -hmm. something like that the landscape's changing but i think that um there's so much we can do without like having to go to westminster i mean i, w I was in westminster may given evidence at the scottish affairs committee okay and uh, it was a great experience. The evidence we gave was used, but the the conclusions they came to were exactly the same as what um, the Dundee Commission ca came to, mm -hmm. bar on a, a decriminalisation and other policies that were added on to that. But I think that would be reiterated in every city, and the, the Commission report should be used as a blueprint for people moving forward. They've only got 12 recommendations that just touch basically on what needs to change. Mm -hmm that the changes should be, the pe the people that work in the services should be 
implementing them at the best of their abilities. Anybody that's been working in drug service for longer than five years needs to be moved on to another job because Mm -hmm. if you're working with people that are emotionally um, needing support or with mental health issues, it it tells on you. And the way your empathy and connection to that person is gone, like you you can't build that relationship. So like drug work or drug services, as we were talking about them earlier on, Saying that should, if you're providing them, it should be on almost a kind of rotational basis to protect to yourself from burnout and stuff. You like wouldn't that. have somebody on A and E for for ten years. Like right. you'd have to move them. Like mm-hmm. you wouldn't have somebody on a psychiatric unit all that time. And mm-hmm. I think with the added pressure of society and what people think of drug users, all them things come into account when you're you're giving somebody treatment or mm-hmm. you're working with them. Your own personal view, whether you want to admit it or not, will come into how that person is treated when they walk through that door. And yeah. I think that there's people that have been working in themselves for far too long. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. That's something that I would have never, as much as I consider burnout in my own job and like, you know, my own teams and stuff like that, like I would have never, it's just never even mm-hmm. crossed my mind that the people providing these services themselves, you know, I've only are, learned are that through experience. Risk. I'm somebody in recovery that supports people in recovery. Mm-hmm. And I have to take time out. I need to, if I don't, mm-hmm. I can't, Oh, it makes perfect it, yeah. sense. It's just the thought had never crossed my mind. Yeah, it, it totally drains you. And no. it, it's it's hard because you just want somebody to get better. You want to do the best for them. And if you've already got issues yourself or not functioning the way you should, Absolutely. it's going to affect how you treat that person, how you view them, and the outcome of that. Absolutely. Mm. Why do you think Scotland's so like badly affected by drug deaths? I mean, with the highest in Europe? Poverty is a huge issue. For it's me. Yeah. just coming down to like the level not of poverty. Ju- I mean, we support people that are middle class who've got issues. Yeah. Like, that happens. I'm not saying that doesn't, but I think for places like where I, where I live in housing schemes and that, you're talking about three generations of people that have, have not worked, that have been on benefits. Mm. Um, you've got the first generation and second, by <coughs> the third generation, they don't know any different. So no one's aspiring to be... Because they think that's that's yeah. what the way life is, so I think then they're stuck in that rut, and and the cycle continues, and that it's been allowed to happen. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. it's absolutely criminal. It just mm-hmm. seems it just well, seems it's, strange it's that two or three, four generations of family were addicted to that. It just baffles well, me completely. It, I mean, I've seen it. I can. I'm when you're, when we're talking, I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Specific families that I grew up around, and well, I can I just remember mean, how the kids. It to get that bad? I get that well, it's a real hang. You know what I mean? I like can that. remember the kids. This like, is the issue I have. Like one, the dad, the, this specific family, the dad was in jail for dealing drugs, mm-hmm. and the youngest kids at the time, and I'm thinking, is like four or five, and I'm walking to school, and the wee guy's sitting outside in his jammies. Do you know what I mean? Literally Aww. just just left. Yeah, because he's Ma's a heroin addict. His big brother and his big sister are heroin addicts, and. That's what I was. That I was thinking earlier on. I was like, they don't have a chance. Like, no. I think that this is where the big, massive misconception. So, I mean, on that point, like, how many of the addicts that you encounter have traumatic childhoods or experienced trauma at a young age? So, everybody I'm working with or are connected to the group right now, they've all experienced trauma in their childhood from one degree or another. Like, mm-hmm. trauma to one person could not mean anything to another person. Of course. Like losing a grandparent, watching your dad get arrested, somebody dying, a breakup, whatever, child abuse, it goes right up. But people always think of the worst case scenario. Of course. But for some, it's not like that. I think we see and try to identify as soon as we meet somebody at the point in which, like, started their addiction Mm -hmm. or at least 
propelled them into being primed for being an addict in yeah. later life. And we can do that within an hour. And then the person fares really well. And mm-hmm. although they will have to deal with a lot of emotional shit that they've probably avoided for a long time, mm-hmm. it happens and it's working. Like, it's, I don't think any recovery is... Yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it's all messy. It's all going to oh, be definitely. hard work. You know what I mean? Like you've like, got, on top of getting into recovery, you've also got to live your life. And then you've got kids and families and the emotional shit trigger, is triggered by all the other stuff. So stuff that might not even be related to your recovery will trigger something from your past. And mm-hmm. dealing with that is like a fucking mountain of shite on top of your head, trying mm-hmm. to breathe and... It's difficult. Like a house of cards yeah. sometimes. And if you've never experienced it or no, don't know anybody that's experienced it, that stuff is overwhelming and you run right back to your coping mechanism, yeah, whatever it. that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds to me like one of the big disconnects in terms of where we are as a country and where, you know, we need to be is like the disconnect between policy and like reality. So it sounds to me as though you're, you're saying that the people who are in charge of formulating and creating policy are maybe approaching it for like an academic or sort of political point of view in a lot of instances, but they don't have that like real, you know, life experience that actually, you know, lived experience or however mm-hmm. we want to approach was. How do we bridge that gap? Because one of the things I was talking about in a, in a short we're releasing um, was about connecting local groups to the system. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've got a lot of great local groups in Glasgow like yourselves. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I really sort of stressed NHS and, you know, public services. Now, I think some of the burden could be relieved by finding a way to bridge or connect these, you know, well-meaning we, groups yeah. with the system. So, like, you were, you were saying you just act as a, a kind of buffer in, yeah. in Dundee. Like, do you have, like, a, an actual connection to... So yeah, it's took the me systemic services. three years to be able to connect with the NHS on a level where I believe that we will actually make a difference, and that just happened three weeks ago. So that's that's wow. yeah, and I mean we've we've helped write policies and mm-hmm. um, structured stuff with the council for years, and we're just starting to get taken seriously now. I think th- I think the reason for that is because they don't understand what a recovery community should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They believe that they can put on social events and do different things, and that's a community. They don't... Communities were ripped out of communities three decades ago, yeah. so people have forgot right. what that's like. Certain people are digging yeah. their own business making a community. We say that we will complement any other service that exists. Mm-hmm. We are there to complement what they do, and vice versa, that yep. should be the same. That's not happening yet, but it's starting to change. It mm-hmm. def- definitely is, and... The platform I've created, I'm very lucky. Like, I never planned any of this. Like, yeah. I just wanted to go out of fucking hell and live my life. But mm-hmm. there's been a, a, a stage in between that that's not going to happen yet. But that's not that doesn't happen for everybody. And, no. and community groups like ours struggle really, really yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. Dan McGarvey donated £5,000 to us this year in January. And that's kind of kept us tied and by mm-hmm. until we can get our social enterprise. But without that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here this year. Like mm-hmm. we would have had to. That's right, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, in in the grand scheme of things, five grand's nothing. No, it's like, definitely not. But that's run I mean? every group, every event, everything for the whole of this year uh-huh. for us. And if we can do that with five thousand pound, can you imagine how much a difference we would make? With we're like salaries and just people a normal doing it wage, yeah, yeah. And, so, and like that's that. the aim. Uh-huh. Like we want to employ young people. We want to employ people that are starting to get in recovery might not be able to function. I mean, the first two years of your recovery, you're not working a full-time job because if you are, you're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. Like, 
and people don't know how to support people in recovery because they've never done it before. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the services are employing peers two years down the line. They're fucking up. They're losing everything because they've not supported them in the way they should. We want to change that and, mm-hmm. and kind of show people how you can employ peers, how you can employ young people, how you can do all these things, get the best out of them, but also give them the opportunity to get their lives back themselves, you mm-hmm. know? I think this is like the, the, the crux here is that they are giving people the opportunity to fix themselves mm-hmm. and get their life back because it's almost... If they, it seems like people get babied they're dealt like children as soon as you, know you as soon as you go to a service you're giving your own power away because yeah. you're believing the person across the table from it's you, gonna you is like, going to fix it. you mm-hmm. or give you the answers to what you've been looking yep. for for the last fucking 30 years now <laughs> that person doesn't know you from Adam so unless you're telling them your whole fucking life story since the day you were born until that point how is he supposed to help you, really, mm-hmm. essentially, in a 15-minute appointment that you might get every six months? Mm-hmm. It's not possible. And NHS are amazing. They do a great job. But I think addiction and the services for mental health are so far off the mark. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's scary. It's, it's fucking it's, ridiculous. Well, in Dundee, they're a way to combine the two worst services, the drug service and the, the mental health service, and put them <coughs> together. And I said like two I said, issues that are often like intrinsically linked to each other. You know what I mean? See, like, I have an issue with that as well because not always, obviously. Yeah, but. I think when we class emotional health as mental health, mm-hmm. and there is a big difference. Mm-hmm. They're both connected, one hundred percent. They are, but if one is is off balance, the other one will be. You you mm-hmm. have to get them in tandem. And I think if you, we find that people who are maybe just coming off methadone and that they then get treatment for their mental health, they're diagnosed with uh, borderline personality. I don't even know how it's possible to have a borderline personality disorder. Uh, you either got you it have, you or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I say to people, you've not got borderline personality disorder. You've got a personality, but yeah. Um, and then two years down the line, they're getting told that it was a misdiagnosis. Uh-huh. So they spent two years thinking, whilst they're trying to get better and deal with all the other shit, that there's something wrong with them. Yeah. So it, it muddies the water a this lot. This is a huge yeah. problem that I've got with a lot of the sort of chatter and mental health is, mm-hmm. is that, unfortunately, and this, this isn't like, I know that you get accused of like blaming victims and victim blaming, right? But mm-hmm. if you've just been through an addiction <laughs> where you've maybe... Being, being with an abusive partner or you've done things that you wouldn't have done had you not been on the drugs and then you start coming off the drugs what you, of course you're going to be emotionally unstable of course you're going to need some help but you're not mentally unwell no you, already you're why like, are you being diagnosed with an, an illness that before not that the case? like before that you if, if say for instance you're on methadone and you stop taking methadone your body is not producing the chemicals in the brain yeah. that it should be to make you feel okay. Yeah. So for however long your body's not functioning the way it should, which would be two or three years after you stop using methadone. Okay. So it then, impacts you for that long? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I still struggle now. There's like days I can't even leave the house. I can't answer the phone. I can't speak to anybody. I've got PTSD, obviously, and that affects... I get triggered with different things, and I, I found ways to deal with that, and I, I can function more than not. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But some people will never get to that stage because Absolutely. they're in relation to their own mental health and their emotional health. They're then getting told they're diagnosed with something else. So instead of thinking the issue lies with them, it's because they're not well. Uh-huh. So then they don't do the work to get better because mm-hmm. they reside themselves to the fact they've got a mental health issue. 
that can't be dealt with. It's blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's actually scary because we've I think there's four or five people now that are two years down the line, and they were all diagnosed with uh, borderline personality disorder, and all to- told two years later that it was a misdiagnosis, and that's four people we know of. It sounds so weird that you know, oh, maybe weirds know the word, but like when somebody has already went through the process of getting themselves clean, mm-hmm. that you know, you would think that that would empower them to like address other issues in their lives and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But you're saying that in a lot of cases, it's actually the, the opposite. Because I know when I have went through periods of drying out or mm-hmm. you know, sort of cleaning up my act and whatnot, that at the other side, I, I found myself quite rewarded for actually like taking yeah, that yeah, control definitely. back and stuff yeah. like that. But in other people, they're just that's just not there. I find it weird that somebody would take the first step, but then you know, maybe fought the second, but then I suppose everybody's experiences they're in and, and, you know, everybody's different. Yeah, once you give your power away to somebody else, it tells you that they're getting better and then that person tells you you're unwell. Mm -hmm. You're not going to make as much effort to get better as you would have done because Mm -hmm. you already think there's something else wrong with you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, for, for instance, like, our recovery story is a story of somebody who has just decided to take the bull by the horns mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instead of going somewhere and them going right here's the crutch that you need yeah and then right in fact that actually you're, you're sick here's another drug like, yeah. you need this for your personality disorder and then you end up just sitting going like what the fuck is wrong with me Aye. like what there's something clearly wrong with me it's and like you're saying it's no they're not getting that emotional help or i mean the amount of these problems that could probably if they had a therapist Yes. And they could sit and they could speak to somebody that's going to speak to them potentially about their childhood. Like the idea, when I first, um, I studied to become a mental health professional mm-hmm. and when I heard about ACs, it was somebody that was on my course that was working in ACs and they told me and they, they, they stood up, I think the, the lecturer was like, you need to do a talk about this because mm-hmm. everybody in the class was looking at each other going, Gobsmack. what is this? Like, mm-hmm. what? And then when they, they laid out the 12 adverse childhood experiences that make you more susceptible to addiction fucking jaw hit the floor I was like I've got four of them and everybody I know has got at least four or five of them I hit them all except for dying that was the only one that I didn't uh reach yeah but I nearly reached that as well mm -hmm. but I think the aces and the stuff that they talk about through aces is amazing I think Gabriel Matt is a brilliant guy I think that they've brought it into Scotland and started blunting it out I don't think people are educated enough to mm-hmm. it to then apply it to what they're doing mm-hmm. that yep. will come it has to develop but it also kind of puts people at risk a little bit if you're if you've not trauma informed you've not gone through trauma yourself or you don't know mm-hmm. then you're yeah it's, it's scary for me i think mm-hmm. i think if it's done right and and people so yeah. yeah, it's all since I heard about it two years ago, mm. and, and the way that it's spoke about online, it's almost like people went, "Here we go, mm-hmm. this is it. We found it. Don't worry." The answer. It was Here's huge the for answer. me. It was huge, it's for, huge me. for me as well. But I think that when we're speaking, what's becoming apparent to me is that everybody's road to addiction is very, very different, mm-hmm. and everybody's road out here is going to be equally as different. There isn't you're going unique, to be that's it. a cookie cutter. But that's almost like, and you're saying societal problems, that's almost like the, the, the holy grail, is if we can find a cookie cutter where we can just push people and just do that, mm-hmm. and that means that you'll be fine. Yeah. It doesn't really work like that, no, does it? It's... I think I found ACES myself when I was starting my recovery and looking through it, I was able to identify a lot of things which 
help myself do that. Mm-hmm. But people that are not informed that way won't be inclined to, to, to go down that road. And then if they're going to professionals that don't, are just banding about ACES, yeah. which they do in Dundee, they, fucking, they all think they're experts. They love it. Yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, I think chatting f- about it because it's like the, whatever the Well, the, the I suppose thing. the funding streams will change. So for recovery and for ACES, so they need to adapt. the funding, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you've got services that were gate, gateway services. So if you needed to go and get uh, a treatment for addiction, you'd go to a gateway service like Adaction or somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. We adaption in Dundee is now the recovery service for Dundee, which blows my mind. There's not one service that can be one service for recovery anywhere. Mm-hmm. Recovery is different for every single person. Yeah. You're going to access a million different things yourself. And to I think it's very arrogant to say you're the recovery service for one city because, mm-hmm. no, you're not, mate. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite a big challenge, I suppose. And as much as we've been probably slightly critical of, or maybe majorly critical, I don't know how people will take it, mm-hmm. I like government and, you know, the services that are provided. Like, on the flip side of it, like, providing <laughs> funding, structure, policy mm-hmm. on something that is so subjective has uh, got to be, like, an absolutely gigantic challenge. And I think that's probably where the advocacy of groups like yours is yeah, absolutely most important. Do you mm-hmm. think that, I know you were saying that the NHS have been a bit reluctant or maybe taking time to like adapt to you but for other people and other groups who are listening to this and thinking the next step for mm-hmm. us is to try and engage with you know the the machinery around us like if you get like tips or is it just be patient and be blip, just you know? yeah you have to like if you think that you're going to change everything right from the, the get-go mm-hmm. it's been three years of really hard work pounding the streets and continuously like engaging with I mean, now we don't have to. We do our thing, they do their thing. If there's something going on and we can work together, cool. But we want to be separate from that so then people can go in and out. But I think as far as, um, I don't know, lived experience, and in my view, it's not valued the way it should be. Right. If somebody was at uni that done 10 years of a PhD and was an expert on it, mm-hmm. And I think the same goes for somebody that's lived through 10 years of living yeah. hell and, yeah. and come out the other side. Because Absolutely. in reality, I should be dead and probably half of the, the rest of the people that are in recovery now should be dead. I think recovery going forward will be much m- more easier to access for people trying to do that. But yeah, I think government and councils locally, I think councils use lived experience for their own means. So they will engage right. with us and whatever they learn, they will use to adapt for what they need. Mm-hmm. There's no crossover or, or trying to work together yet. I think we've done a few things with council and I've always engaged with them, working with them. Yeah. Because if I didn't, I wouldn't be changing it. Like, of course. Um, government, I think, so far removed from the issues that Scotland face, even Scottish government. Right. I think for us to tackle these issues... I think locally there needs to be more power for councils and, and places like that. Mm-hmm. But whether that will happen or not. Sorry, don't worry about it. It happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> People's phones going off. That's my, can I answer this? Aye, on you go. Aye, my mother-in-law, enough. sorry. Hello? Hi. Are you okay? Got to leave this in. Are you in Crans? Are oh. you in my house? No, I'm not in the house, mate. I'm in Glasgow. Right, I have to do it in a minute because I'm working just now, okay? I'll phone you back when I'm done, right? I won't be long. 
No, Auntie Audrey's not here. Yeah, what, 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 what? Right, when you listen, I'll speak to you. I'll phone you back, right? I'll phone you back. I'll phone you back. <laughs> You're being a wide on now. Go away. <laughs> My seven-year-old son. Shouldn't be let loose on the phone, Mike. I'm going to leave that in. Just for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's quite funny. What were um, we talking about, though? Um, the difficulty of connecting like groups like recovery cafes and whatnot to the actual machine they're doing about them. Because mm-hmm. um, I think, that, as I say, I think that's the way forward for me is, yeah. the, is actually taking people who are experts in the field of these lived experiences that you're, you know, obviously references. They need to be valued like, in, the, in the way yeah. they, like the, the knowledge they have. There's no way they can change services and change the, gr- the culture of recovery, drugs, uh-huh. whatever, without speaking to people that yep. have, have lived it. I think in the past it's been very tokenistic. That's changing. I mean, mm-hmm. in proof of that, I mean, I yeah. wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing if, if it wasn't valued a bit more than it has been. But Absolutely. I think government, as I said, and council are so far removed from the issues that are locally to, to housing schemes, to, mm-hmm. to communities. I think that unless they do, they're never going to address the issue in a way that's going to save people mm-hmm. or make it not the worst issue that Scotland's yeah, got right absolutely. now. Absolutely. Know? I think like when you were talking earlier right back at the start of the episode about how we educate kids on like, it's a drug use. For me, like, where it's just about like this is how this is the effects and blah blah blah. And here's here's just the list of drugs. You've got people that have never took drugs going to school yeah. telling kids not to take drugs. And yeah. to me, it's like okay, then it's like your gran or your mum saying, "Don't do that, please." And mm-hmm. they they educate them, they show them some of the stuff is fine. But you're talking about kids from housing schemes predominantly yeah. where I'm living that. Their only education is through drug dealers or people. Aye, yeah. Like they don't know they're They've another site. The stuff that's sitting in yeah. glass jars on the case. These kids on the probably know already. more about Aye. drugs than the fucking teachers. People that are actually yeah. Yeah. So you've got to come to their level on it and understand. We work with an offsite school in Dundee, so kids that don't fare well in mainstream. So a lot of the kids are affected by addiction, alcoholics, mm-hmm. parents, and and uh, people addicted to other drugs. Um, and we, I always. Every time I go there and speak every six months, one of the kids from that school will come to the community and we've helped them into housing, yep. college and stuff like that. And they're, we're not telling them anything. They're learning from everybody around them. They're seeing that somebody's been on heroin for 40 years. They're seeing that there's three generations. They're, mm-hmm. they're living and breathing, people getting better and being proactive about their own communities. And mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to educate anybody is, is to let them see this the way to find solutions and, and, and problem solving. The actual realities for and themselves. Them, yeah, yeah, and let them be involved in that. Once they value their own community, they're going to value keeping it so people are getting better. Mm-hmm. They're going to always contribute in some yeah. sort of way. Mm-hmm. And it's... Yeah. And once that example set for them, it's something that stays with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in a lot of places around Scotland and Dundee in particular, mm-hmm. like the example that's been set for them is the wrong one. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, this is something that we keep coming across time and time again with people is, is that the destruction of the community in the 70s and 80s when the country got deindustrialized yeah. and Still happening now. Uh, yeah, has been a disaster. has been an absolute mitigated disaster okay. and it's ended up with I, people feeling isolated. And um, I'm, I'm just thinking about, like, earlier on we did say and we did bash 
social media and we were like the people were mm-hmm. being yeah. able to take advantage of social media yeah. for them to use it as like a selling tool because that's what they're doing they're using Snapchat as a way of advertising yeah, yeah. They're, they're out and about in their motor and they're selling drugs but mm-hmm. also I, I feel like it's all on the flip side of that social media has had quite a lot to do with bringing people together oh, 100% like the People thought I was a manager of Ad Action for the first year we were online, <laughs> which was quite amusing at times. But and it's created a, a, a brilliant platform for us. I think like everything, like community, or everything's got a bad side. Mm-hmm. I just think the bad side of social media has been let run. Like there, there is no policing of it. Yeah. There's no accountability from these platforms that are making millions of pounds of people every day. So yeah. I think that. There's a way to tackle that issue, but yeah, social media for us has been huge. Like you can't be an activist without going on social media. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. How do you end up with people? Was it? Did you say earlier on like New York or something like that? Well, like, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, so a guy from Dundee lives in New York, and obviously seen the documentary that we did, and his he had a family member that needed support, so he contacted me through email. We had a member go to uh, meet a guy from Australia. He was a heroin user for 40 years and he got the naltrexone implant over there. So he was like the first guinea pig there to get it. Okay. Um, so what's so, that? So it's an implant that lasts, it can last for six months or a year. Mm-hmm. It's it's not an opiate, it's a, like a blocker. Mm-hmm. So it puts stuff in between the, the receptors in the brain. Okay. So, so if you take heroin, you wouldn't get, a, don't get yeah, any, any anything. Right. So for heroin and opiate use... There's a hundred percent success rate, mm-hmm. and for other drugs, it's like sixty, seventy percent. Mm. Um, okay. We're ad- we're trying. To- we will get that to Dundee. We've already started. Yeah, an fund- advocate. Yeah, I think okay. it's another option for people. I'm not saying it's going to work for everybody, yeah, but, but as many options as we can get. Exactly. But so I mean, as much as it's affecting the brain and blocking, you know, the mm-hmm. proteins or whatever it is that generate the, you know, also addictive mind to, to be in recovery, so you're not medicated. I'm assuming the body still goes through withdrawal. Yeah, so I think if you're on opiates, you have to be four days clean from them, and they will help you um, with the withdrawals to that. And right. Once you're on that, then I think you're okay. Like, But I don't think they can give it to you if you've got opiates in your system. Right. I think methadone takes a few, few days longer. It's maybe five or six days before you can get the implant. But I say to people, like, they're only five days. Like, you've done five days before without yeah. heroin. So... And at the end of it, you're going to be moving forward. Mm-hmm. Like I say, it's not for everybody. Anything, uh, yeah. anything that will help is worth having on the table, mm-hmm. but isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that was, um, I mean, there are other, we're starting to see a lot of research that there are other illegal drugs that can help you with like coming off harder drugs. So mm-hmm. there's loads of stuff going about like, so like microdosing. Microdosing, yeah, microdosing like uh, psilocybin, <coughs> microdosing MDMA. Um, cannabis is one that's used quite I think is something that's probably just happened in the community where people have managed mm-hmm. to help I mean I, I was saying off mic that I knew a guy that um, just desperately wanted off heroin in 99 something like that it was a, a mate of my sister's mm-hmm. boyfriend and he managed to get himself off by his family locking him in the room with hash and yeah. then he, he just obviously he's went through Is are they, so I think with, with psilocybin and things like I think it's different, but with like cannabis, is it just helping you get through the symptoms of withdrawal? For, for, I used it at the start, and I've 
uh, periodically when I've been triggered with my PTSD, I've used that to get mm-hmm. past that stage. It's like a coping tool. It's not, I don't use it all the time, but of I think that it worked for me and it works for me when I need it. I think other people would be the same. I think everybody's different, their biology's different, so what works for one person won't work for another. I know people that can't smoke cannabis in the first year of, of being off mm-hmm. opiates. Like yeah. It just drives them like yeah. to paranoia mm-hmm. and it causes all sorts of... Of course. But I think if it's, it's done properly... Mm-hmm. Um, in a controlled environment, then there's huge benefits for that. Absolutely. Definitely. I think there's loads of stuff about, we're talking about CBD, which mm-hmm. is a non psychoactive yes. chemical that's found in cannabis, and that helps people mm-hmm. just by like sort of calm. It's like a sort of calming yeah. agent yeah. and stuff. But mm-hmm. with PTSD, there's tons and tons of stuff on, especially like MDMA. Mm-hmm. And that to me is like mind blowing that mm-hmm. they could use ecstasy essentially. Yeah. To try and help people. It was already, like, to start with, that MDMA was used for mental health issues. That's how it was born, like, the history of it. Really? I never knew yeah, that. Yeah, no, really. I never did that. yeah. No, neither did I. Yeah, look it up. Look it up. Like, in America, they used it, like, decades and decades ago for mental health treatment. And I think, I'm not, don't quote me, it might not be true, mm. schizophrenia and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, 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 uh, I know obviously like the hallucinogenics, LSD and such were mm-hmm. all, you know, thoroughly experimented in those terms as well. But as I say, I've got no real uh, connection with the, the microdosing side. I mm-hmm. think, if, again, if people find something that works for them um, and it's no, you know, Once you learn them, self-control, like if something's, well, what, like if you if you have self-control, then something like, like that would work for, for you. But mm-hmm. if you've not got self-control, you're going to overdo it again, you, you? Yeah, you could, mm-hmm. you could, you could go so far the other way. So it would, it's got to be very, you've got to be very careful. Mm-hmm. With I think it. that's something that we don't really, we take a lot of self control away from people nowadays, don't we? It's almost like, no, see if you, if you're going through this, this is what will work for you. You need to take that, yep. and, mm-hmm. and we don't really. There's a lack of buckle down and just get yourself through it and just realise that you're going to crave and you're going to but you need to just get you need to get yourself to the other side of the the, what, the tunnel or whatever it I th- is I know. think when when the drug service success rate in Dundee is like 1.7% that's like that's crazy yeah that's true um, and so me and my friend who come off uh, methadone we had no point of reference. Like the first five years, everything I know, I learned from her. And if I didn't know what she'd been through, there's no way I could be at the point I am now. Mm-hmm. And I think that we took back control. We took back control yeah. of what we needed to do ourselves. And I think, as I said before, taking away someone's power, be it with a doctor mm-hmm. or a nurse or something, like you're automatically making it, like putting a, a barrier in their way to get yeah, better. Yeah. And I don't think people understand that because nobody in the NHS or a doctor goes to work thinking, I'm going to make it difficult for somebody. Uh, like, how do I handle this person's recovery? Exactly, like, that doesn't happen. No, like, they, there's a, there's a f- I think it's union live, as well. Yeah. There's a union thing where I thought of the inner child. And when you're put into, so when you're put into positions of feeling like there's an authority figure, you revert back to what the 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 way that you were when oh, you, so you become felt Ill. when you felt that sort of so like, when a doctor's coming out, you get more compliant yeah, because absolutely. he's an authority figure. They, they but also, if your a, triggers stemming for your childhood, and that's what's caused you to become an addict in the first place, you're getting looked right the way back to that. I and then she was like authority figures. Exactly. I think right. that when when somebody's addicted in their teens, like or or had trauma in their childhood, 
and you're going to a service, like they say, when you stop using methadone, you revert back to the age you were when you first started. So right. we've got thousands wow. of adolescents running about in adult bodies. And trying people to, whose heads have been they, clear for 30 yeah, years. Yeah, they've never lived as adults. They've never lived in society as a productive, um Again, that's one that makes perfect sense when you hear it, but I've yeah. never, never even thought about it like that. that something takes 30 years of your life when you actually finally clear your head. You know no more than a teenager. There's absolutely yes. zero clarity. You've no point of reference. Aye, that's mental. Yeah. You've got zero clarity. This Can you imagine is... how terrifying that is? Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> it's taken me, you know, 30 whatever years. I can't even remember now. But anyway, 30-something years uh, to, you know, even come to terms with myself in even the very basic of terms. Like, to go through 30 years of torment and then come out the other side of it as a grown-up and knowing as much about the world as a teenager would be... I don't know. I mean, fair play anybody who does that journey and comes mm-hmm. out the other side of it because they're absolute warriors, man. This is where we, <coughs> when, when, did, when we did Daisy's episode with James, mm-hmm. we get a couple, like, I think I might have mentioned it already, where it was like, nah, that's just an excuse and you're only responsible for yourself. And like, I, I, st- I grew up in a scheme and my, my dad battered my mum, but I didn't end up an addict. And I think that, well, great for you, mate. Like, I'm I great like, for you, pal. Like, yeah. I, I really like admire you, but at the same time, like that—that's not the same for everybody. Like, yeah. everybody's story is very, very different. I think. Than- I think everybody deals with emotions differently, and if you've already had issues in your childhood where you you deal with any any emotional issue negatively or have a negative response to it, that's not going to change when you get into adolescence if you've not got somebody teaching you how to be emotionally balanced. Yep. That won't change going into your 20s. That's just going to get worse because you see loads of other people around you managing to navigate life and you just cannot cope. You cannot cope. And for whatever reason, you, you can't identify that. And it stems back to your childhood, whether people want to say, oh, that's a cop-out or not. Who's going to be responsible for all the child abuse and neglect that went on in the 80s and 90s that created the addicts now? Are we going to hold the adults responsible from back then? Mm-hmm. Or, or the, the adults that are yeah. trying to be adults that are actually children inside? It's, it blows my mind when people go, it's a choice. You, you choose to take drugs or you can choose to stop. Mm. I'm like, when you become an addict, there is no choice. Like, that choice is gone. Yeah. Like, your choice is gone. You've gave up that power, and and you're now a slave to whatever drug or yep. alcohol it is. It's. I think these people need to realise, especially in the face of you know multi generational addiction, mm-hmm. particularly which and you know this conversation has been the most sort of heartbreaking element for me. That's the one that will stay with me after this conversation is that there's multiple generations of families who suffer for basically the same illness. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's an illness that has been grown out of personal circumstance, environment, history, and any number mm. of other things. But at the same time, as you say, if you're born in an impoverished area, Dundee, the statistical likelihood, given that your parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles and whoever else happen to also be drug addicts, that you will then be a drug addict is, you know... The worst thing I find is It's the is opposite when, yeah. of water figures, isn't it? It's, just, it's almost a dead cert that that's who you're going to be. You're trying to be an addict. Yeah. I think I think most difficult in the work I do now is when you meet young people that are maybe... 18, 21, 24, and you know they tell you your family history, and you know at some point they're either going to get wise and move forward, or they are going to be addicts, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. Like you, you've just got to watch it unfold, or and be there. It's it's quite upsetting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I mean, well, over the hour, it's been an, a 
fan Aye. conversation. I really enjoyed this one. Mm-hmm. If that's the word for it, to be honest with you, I know that. as much as you can enjoy, yeah. yeah, enjoy a conversation. But the, this mm-hmm. is a, aye, this is the, the the type of things that we want to talk about to put out in the podcast mm-hmm. because with just so passionate about like helping people and real making people realise that there is things that can be done to sort of intervene as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but thanks very much for coming in and, and talking. Yeah, I really appreciate nice you making the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. And that. you came all the way for Dundee just for this because you weren't in the BBC. <laughs> I know, yeah, well, I've got a couple of mates to meet, so it's not too bad. So it's yeah. not too bad. Get a night out as well. So. Get a wee bee on the Scotland game, aren't right. you? Oh, yeah, God, yeah. <laughs> but okay, again, yeah. thanks very much for no coming worries, in. No worries, thank you. Thanks.